everyone, and welcome back to Roots Music History. On this podcast, we talk about the stories behind songs and legends, as well as sometimes new up-and-coming artists in a playlist I have called Roots History in the Making. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about the story behind White Christmas. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. A lot of people think that the premiere of White Christmas was in the musical Holiday Inn. However, the very first public appearance of White Christmas was on Bing Crosby's radio show on Christmas Eve of 1941. Now, this was just a few weeks after Pearl Harbor was attacked. To date, the song White Christmas has been recorded by over 500 artists and translated into dozens and dozens of different languages. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, White Christmas is the best-selling single of all time. The song was written by a man named Irving Berlin. Irving's real name was Israel. He was born in Russia, but when his family immigrated from Russia to America, he changed his name from Israel to Irving to assimilate with American culture. I will call him Irving throughout this episode just because that's the name that he chose and that's the name that everyone knows him by. Irving was born into a very strict Orthodox household, very similar, by the way, to Leonard Cohen. If you have not seen my episode on the story behind the song Hallelujah, I go into Leonard Cohen's life and everything that led Leonard Cohen to that moment when he wrote the song Hallelujah. Irving was the youngest of eight children, but he and only five of his siblings, along with his parents, moved from Russia to America when Irving was about five years old. It's unclear to me if his last name changed from Balin to Baleen. I don't know how I would pronounce it, but the spelling of his last name did change a little bit, and I'm sure it probably changed at Ellis Island. I know Ellis Island changed our family name when our family came over from Greece, so I'm assuming that his last name changed there at Ellis Island, but I don't think he changed his first name from Israel to Irving until later when he was really pursuing music as a career. I could be wrong about that. And someone said in my last episode, I should make this disclaimer. I agreed with him. I do all of these episodes by memory. I'm not following a script. All, all of my episodes come from either conversations that I've had in the industry or conversations that I've had with family members of people who I'm doing the documentaries about or just, you know, stories that have been told down from generation to generation. Now, I do look at old newspaper clippings. I do look at actual lawsuits that occurred, and I do look at actual, uh, you know, ancestry files when I make these as well. I also will listen to interviews if I don't have access to the information otherwise. So some of this information is taken from the internet or from records or from interviews that I'm watching or listening to, and other information is taken from conversations. So also the fact that I'm not following a script means that I might misspeak. I might say something wrong. Sometimes my brain just trips up. <laughs> so if I trip up, um, you know, like in my Randy Rhodes documentary, I said that D was done on the electric guitar. Obviously I meant the acoustic guitar. In another episode, I think that I said that someone was hired into a family and <laughs> I meant to say that they were adopted into that family. It might have been, I think that was um, the episode I put a spell on you that I was talking about the origins of shock rock and the song I put a spell on you, how that song was really the very first shock rock experience. But I misspoke in there and I said that he was hired into a family. Obviously I meant adopted. So I make mistakes. Um, 
just a disclaimer. I'll have to make like a formal disclaimer, I suppose, for this channel. Just know that as we continue that I might misspeak and that all of this is just from memory and it's me sitting down on my lunch hour and just having a conversation with you. And also, I want you to know this is an open discussion. So if I say something and it triggers a thought or a memory or a correction, please comment it down below. This is open discord for music lovers everywhere, okay? Um, but with that said, this is something I'm not sure about. I don't know when he changed his name from Israel to Irving. I do think it was when he was pursuing music and we'll get to that in a little bit. Coming to America was a huge deal for his family and for Irving. Irving absolutely loved America once he got here and immediately became consumed in patriotism and American pride. He always says that he was Jewish and he was Russian, but he says, first and foremost, I was American. He was one of those old school immigrants who just really assimilated and loved the country and did everything that he could to not only serve his country, later in his life, but to serve his community and his neighbors and the people around him. He was a very, very giving person and absolutely believed in the American dream. Once the family settled in New York City, his father, who was an Orthodox rabbi, started taking up a bunch of little jobs around New York City to put food on the table for the family. His father was a very successful man, a very hard worker, also loved America, loved God. And when his father died, when Irving was just 13 years old, the whole family took a really big blow. His mother started working, something that she hadn't done for years. She was always a homemaker. His siblings all took jobs trying to support the family, and Irving was no different. Even though he was only 13 years old, he left school so that he could work and support his family. He worked as a waiter at a couple of restaurants, and at these cafes where he was waiting tables, there would be a piano, there would be a microphone, people would do little afternoon shows. And Irving quickly realized that he was a performer and people loved to see him perform. It started with him just kind of picking up the microphone or playing the piano, you know, it's a couple simple chords. He didn't even really know how to play and singing, but he absolutely loved the romance of somebody playing and everyone listening to it. And he loved that energy. So when Irving was in junior high and high school, he started teaching himself how to play the piano simply because he wanted to perform at these cafes. It soon became the case that Irving was waiting tables less and less and performing at these cafes more and more. There was a family, I just wanna briefly mention this because obviously he wrote the song White Christmas and he's Jewish, but there was a family, they were neighbors with his family, they were called the O'Hara's and they were very, very Catholic. The O'Hara's introduced Irving and his family to Christmas and to the idea of Christmas. It was with the O'Hara's, Irving saw his very first Christmas tree. He experienced the magic of decorating the Christmas tree and the presents underneath the tree. And of course, just the whole Christmas concept of Santa Claus and, you know, the whole American frenzy that kind of occurred around Christmas. This was very new to Irving and it was thanks to the O'Hara's that he was exposed to this in the first place. In his interviews later in life, people would ask him, how could you write such a good Christmas song being so Jewish? Irving always gave the O'Hara's some sort of credit saying that he was exposed to Christmas at a very young age. He sort of correlated 
the Christmas celebrations with the American culture, because coming from Russia and from a very Jewish Orthodox village and upbringing, he really hadn't seen all of that before. So he really associated Christmas with America and being American. And he would say in his interviews, well, yes, I'm Jewish, but I wrote the song as an American. I didn't write it as a Russian Jew. I wrote it as an American and America loves Christmas. And that's why I wrote the song. It just kind of goes back to how badly people wanted to be Americans back then. And even, even still now, but part of wanting to be American also meant assimilating into their culture and respecting their culture and not denying their religious holiday of Christmas. You know, now you have all of these people saying Christmas is racist and you have to stop, you know, with the Christmas decorations. You're not supposed to say Merry Christmas. You're supposed to say Happy Holidays. But you have someone like Irving coming from Russia as a very, you know, Jewish Orthodox human respecting, not only respecting Christmas, but assimilating into the Christmas culture, loving the culture, respecting it to the point that he writes a song because he loves America so much and loves that that is something that America values. And I think it's such an important concept when playing the song White Christmas, that concept that isn't spoken, it's not part of any of the lyrics, it's not part of any of the movies, and also, let me just continue this rant for one more second, but if you go visit any other country, if you go and you visit India, if you go visit Morocco, if you go visit Israel, um, if you go visit anywhere, anywhere else in this world, if you go to another country, you are respectful of that country's values. You are respectful of that country's culture. America is literally the only country where people can come in and not be respectful of our values and what we were built on. And it just blows my mind, but anyways. Later, as an adult, Irving said that he had no memory of his time in Russia except for one thing that he remembered. He remembered there was a night where he was wrapped in a blanket on the side of the road watching his house burn to the ground. Irving said that he didn't even realize how poor his family was and how much his family was struggling as a child. It wasn't until he was much older that he realized all of the hardships that his mother and father were going through, but he was happy. He was a happy child and he really didn't know how poor he was, which reminds me of Dolly Parton. If you haven't seen my Dolly Parton Roots documentary, I talk about Dolly Parton's early life and everything that led her through her career and how she became famous. It's a really great story. I will link it in the description down below. And it's kind of similar with Irving. He says, I didn't even realize how poor we were because we were so happy. In addition to singing in the cafes and restaurants to make money, Irving would also go busking to support his family, which basically just means singing on the street with a little hat for people to throw money into. Irving had one problem though. He loved to perform and he loved to sing, but he did not know how to read or write actual sheet music. He also did not know how to play the piano. He taught himself piano in F sharp, just a couple of chords, just barely enough that could get him by, just enough chords so that he could play a very simple song. He could only play in F sharp. He could not teach himself how to play in anything else. And keep in mind, this was before the internet, before YouTube, before Google. So it was much harder to self-teach yourself 
how to play an instrument. In the time that he was playing in these cafes and restaurants, he started to become entwined into the network in New York City of songwriters and singers. In this network, there were a few folks who were associated with a place called Tin Pan Alley. Tin Pan Alley was basically a brick and mortar that was a collection of publishers who would produce sheet music and distribute it throughout New York City and throughout America so that people could obtain songs and learn how to play them and sing them themselves. Now, like I said, this was before Google. You couldn't just Google, what are the chords to White Christmas? You know, you actually had to go and get this sheet music and bring it home and learn it on paper. Crazy, right? But Tin Pan Alley was responsible for all of that production and distribution. Tin Pan Alley pretty much dominated the New York music scene in the 19th and 20th centuries. The brick and mortar was located at West 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue in the Flower District of Manhattan. It opened around 1885 when a number of music publishers decided to put their money together and operate out of this brick and mortar location. Eventually, the phonograph and radio and motion pictures started to replace the sheet music that was once the driving force in American publishing, and Tin Pan Alley slowly started to become obsolete as technology improved. It's debatable if Tin Pan Alley quote, died around the Great Depression or around the 1950s. But one thing we know for sure is that it wasn't until 2019 when the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission decided to preserve five buildings, units 47 through 55 of West 28th Street, as historical landmarks, and the area was officially pinned as the, quote, Tin Pan Alley Historic District. Now, there was one music publisher who was associated with Tin Pan Alley named Harry, and Harry saw Irving playing in a cafe one day and absolutely loved him. Harry went back to Tin Pan Alley and started bragging to all of his friends about how good Irving was and how they should hire him into Tin Pan Alley as a songwriter. It was through this connection with Harry, he was hired in as a songwriter when he was just 18 years old. While working at Tin Pan Alley, he was knocking out song after song after song. He would basically sing and play the song on his piano in very basic chords, and then someone else at Tin Pan Alley, like I said, would transcribe it into sheet music or transpose it into different keys or add in and layer in some additional notes, you know, make it a little bit more fancy because Irving was so basic and could only play what he taught himself on the piano. But by the time Irving was 19 years old, he published his very first song. It was called Marie from Sunny Italy. And by 1911, one of his songs from that album actually went international. That song was called Alexander's Ragtime. The hits after that just kept rolling out for Irving and it launched what was an incredible music career for Irving Berlin. Through Tin Pan Alley, he produced over 19 musicals, 18 movie musicals, and over 1,000 songs. By the time Irving turned 24, he had a pretty stable career, I would say, and he married the love of his life, Dorothy. Dorothy and Irving went on a honeymoon in Havana where Dorothy contracted typhoid fever. Just a few months into their marriage, Dorothy sadly passed away from the fever. The moment that Irving lost Dorothy, his first wife, his music style completely changed. He was a very happy-go-lucky kind of a songwriter. He wrote funny songs, obviously songs for musicals that were upbeat and cheery. But when he lost Dorothy, he was struck with writer's block for months. 
I think it was about six months, he didn't write anything. And then the very first song that he wrote after Dorothy's death was a very sad, slow song called When I Lost You. And after that, his style really changed into a slow ballad style versus the uppity, happy-go-lucky songs he was writing before. Five years after his wife's death, Irving was drafted into the military, into the U.S. Army, to serve in World War I. Now, this actually made national headlines, and America was stunned that Irving Berlin would be drafted into the U.S. Army. Because keep in mind, Irving now is about 30 years old. He's an established songwriter. He's very well known in the music industry. Headlines literally read like, Berlin gets drafted. Berlin is going to war. Everyone was like, no, we can't lose the one person who writes good music. But the army did not want to draft Irving Berlin to fight in combat. Nay, nay. They wanted to draft him to write patriotic songs to inspire the military and unite everyone against their common enemy. The army sent Irving Berlin to a camp so that he was actually with the soldiers and he was boots on the ground with them, even though he wasn't actually fighting, but he was immersed in this war just as much as anybody else was. And while there, he wrote a very famous musical called Yip Yip Yap Hank. Yip Yip Yap Hank. Yip Yip Yap Hank. I feel like you're supposed to say it that way. One of the most famous songs that he wrote for Yip Yip Yap Hank was God Bless America. It's important to note Irving Berlin wrote the song God Bless America while stationed there because God Bless America wasn't actually released as a song until the late 1930s. And many people think that's when it was written, but it was not. It was written in World War I by Irving Berlin at this camp. It's important to note the timing of this because keep in mind, this was just five or six years after he lost Dorothy, after his style of writing changed. If Dorothy hadn't had this tragic death, we might not have God Bless America because that's what turned him into the slow ballad type songs like God Bless America. And he had so much respect for this country and all of that comes out in the song God Bless America. After leaving the U.S. Army, it was about 1921, Irving Berlin went back to Tin Pan Alley. It was around this time he met a man named Sam Harris. He and Sam developed what would be called the Music Box Theater. This Music Box Theater was Irving Berlin's baby. He loved the Music Box Theater. He put so much work into the Music Box Theater and primarily what he worked on in his 30s was all music for productions that would be played at the Music Box Theater. After he settled in the success of the Music Box Theater, it was in the year 1926, Irving Berlin eloped with a very well-known socialite named Ellen. Ellen's father did not want Ellen to marry Irving Berlin whatsoever. He did not like him. He actually went so far as to send Ellen to Europe one summer after she met Irving in hopes that Ellen would forget about Irving and meet someone else. But Irving Berlin kept writing Ellen songs and letters and literally putting songs in his musicals that he was telling Ellen, I wrote this about you. And Ellen was completely wooed. This completely worked. She came back from Europe even more in love with Irving than she was when she left. 
and the two of them, like I said, eloped because her father was so against the marriage. Also, Ellen was very Catholic, and like I said, Irving was extremely Jewish. After the two of them eloped in 1926, they moved back to New York City. This time, Irving did not take his bride to Havana. And in their very first year of marriage, Ellen gave birth to a very beautiful baby girl. A year after giving birth to a very beautiful baby girl, Ellen gave birth to their very first boy. They named this boy Irving Jr. And Irving was born around early December. Very, very tragically, on Christmas Day, Irving passed away as a newborn. After losing their son on Christmas Day, Ellen's father came down he stayed with them for a few days while they worked through their grief of losing a child, losing a baby just a few weeks after being born on Christmas Day. I can't even imagine. And after that, Ellen's father loved Irving. I didn't realize until I was going through some old newspaper articles after I recorded this video, right after Irving and Ellen had their first daughter, Ellen's mother tragically died. It was at her mother's funeral. Her father reconciled with Ellen, but he still refused to speak to Irving. Once they had Irving Jr., the father came and started helping Ellen and Irving, and the father was actually there at Irving Jr.'s bedside when he passed away. The death of their son, Irving Jr., really affected the family. Every single year on Christmas Day, after Irving Jr. died, they had a tradition where the whole family would go to Irving Jr.'s grave on Christmas Day. For the next decade, Irving would continue to work on projects for the Music Box Theater, and the Music Box Theater continued to grow. So did he and Ellen's family. They would give birth to two more children, after Irving Jr., Linda Louise in 1932, and Elizabeth in 1936. In January of 1940, Irving Berlin walked into his office and said to his assistant, I need you to transcribe a song for me. I wrote it over the weekend. It is the best song I have ever written. Not only is it the best song I have ever written, I think this is the best song ever written. And it was on that day that Irving Berlin played White Christmas for his assistant in F sharp, because that was the only thing he could play it. <laughs> there is a lot of misinformation out there that Irving Berlin wrote this song in Beverly Hills or in Palm Springs or in somewhere very warm in California, outside of LA. He might've finished the song in California or finished the song in one of those locations, but he actually had to have written this song in New York City because he went into that office in early January of 1940 saying he wrote the song the weekend before, which would have been around Christmas. His family was spending Christmas in New York City in December of 1939. So White Christmas 100% was written in 1939 in New York City. Now, I also want to mention that at this time, Irving Berlin is in his late 30s. We talked about how his musical style changed with his very first wife, Dorothy's death. But as he went through his 30s and worked on projects in the Music Box Theater, he started to get back that happy-go-lucky side that he once had in his early 20s at Tin Pan Alley. And the songs he was writing were funny and happy and satirical. He actually was working on a musical in December of 1939 that was kind of a funny 
musical. He wrote White Christmas originally for that musical. Now that musical never really came to fruition and the song was never used for that musical. And the very first verse of White Christmas was actually talking about palm trees and the sun and green grass and it had this kind of upbeat silly Hollywood vibe to it because Irving Berlin originally wrote the song as a satire. He did not write the song as this sappy, I'm away from home, sad song. No, no, he wrote it as a satire, as like Hollywood socialites at a pool party, kind of la like being like, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know. Not like, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. You know, it's not sad. It's supposed to be happy and funny. So he did write the song in January of 1940, but it was actually a whole year. It was the spring of 1941 that he signed his contract with Paramount for White Christmas. The song actually was in his back pocket and he was holding that song for a whole year. And it actually reminds me of this interview that Stevie Nicks gave once where she said, you know, sometimes you can write a song, but it's just not that song's time. You have to wait for the right time for that song. The timing just has to be, as we say in Roots Music History, divine music intervention. You need that divine music timing for the song to be right. And that's exactly what happened here. He wrote it in January of 1940. It was the spring of 1941. He signs the contract. It was the fall of 1941 that Paramount started casting for Holiday Inn and really started probing Bing Crosby that they wanted Bing Crosby. Now, at some point in the fall of 1941, Bing Crosby does sign with Paramount to do the musical Holiday Inn and White Christmas is officially part of the Holiday Inn musical. Unexpectedly, on December 7th of 1941, Pearl Harbor was attacked. But like I said, Irving Berlin had already written the song White Christmas. So this didn't result in Irving Berlin writing White Christmas. Completely serendipitously, on Christmas Eve of 1941, Bing Crosby decided to sing the song White Christmas for the American public for the very first time. Now the exact wording of the first verse was, quote, the sun is shining, the grass is green, the orange and palm trees sway. There's never been such a day in Beverly Hills, LA, but it's December the 24th and I'm longing to be up north dreaming of a white Christmas. Oh, I just love this story because it's just like the timing, right? It's God's timing. It's divine music intervention because Bing Crosby sings this song on his radio show at a time where people are being drafted for World War II. And people heard this song and thought about troops being deployed and troops leaving and remembering Christmas and remembering the Christmases that used to be. After that first appearance, this song took on a whole new meaning for the people who heard it. Totally different than the meaning that Irving Berlin had in his heart when he was writing it. I truly believe God gives these songs to these songwriters, songs that are meant to be here, songs that are meant for us, meant to carry us through. And with every great song, the songwriter sits there and says, I wrote it in like five seconds and the song just came to me like a genie in a bottle. How do you explain that? Except 
divine intervention. And that is exactly what was happening with White Christmas. The song was originally written to be funny as a satire. It was played on the radio in a funny, lighthearted way. I'm dreaming of being up north just for a white Christmas. But the people who heard the song needed that song and needed that message. After Bing Crosby sings the song on his radio station, the U.S. Army radio took up the song and started playing it more as a sad and somber, you know, memory of Christmases that used to be. And it also reminded everyone who was being drafted why they were being drafted. It reminded everyone of America and of the life that they love here. It was very soon into 1942, Irving Berlin and Bing Crosby realized this song had taken on a whole new unexpected meaning in American culture. So Irving Berlin contacted his publisher, for White Christmas and requested that they formally remove that first verse about green grass and such a lovely day and just dreaming of being up north. Remove that entirely and make the song more of just that slow, sad ballad. Also, in the musical Holiday Inn, they started to sprinkle in some patriotic messages. If you have not seen Holiday Inn, you can actually get it on Amazon Prime or probably any streaming service. It is the cutest movie. If you have your Christmas tree up and a fire in the fireplace and your hot cocoa, Holiday Inn is just an old black and white movie that just makes you feel good because it's an old black and white movie, but it's also super cute. It has a really cute plot and I highly recommend watching it as a family this Christmas season. If you want a break from the Hallmark or a break from the new funny, you know, rom-coms, Holiday Inn is just so cute and it really is a good story that people will actually get invested in. In 1942, Irving Berlin and Bing Crosby realized that White Christmas was not going away. They thought that this frenzy over White Christmas was just a phase, but they were realizing that no, Americans loved the song White Christmas. This was becoming a staple song for the Christmas season. And so at that point, Bing Crosby decided to make a full-blown movie called White Christmas featuring that song. Over the years, like I said in the beginning, hundreds of artists have continued to record renditions of the song White Christmas. You pretty much can't go a single holiday season without hearing the song White Christmas, but so many people just don't know the sentiment behind it and really how that song carried America through some of America's darkest days. It reminded everyone of their families back home, of their country back home, of their values back home. And what I hope you take away from this video and from the story of White Christmas was the full-blown respect that Irving Berlin had for this country and for their Christian values. Even being Jewish and not celebrating Christmas, he says in every interview, I wrote this song as an American. I didn't write it as a Jew. I wrote it as an American, as someone who loves this country and loves what this country stands for and loves its traditions and honors its traditions. People are still to this day talking about the impact that White Christmas had on our society in the 1940s. Just as recently as 2021, there was a really great article posted with the title, White Christmas was the song America needed to fight fascism. I will link that article in the description down below, but that's not the only one. I mean, everybody has talked about the impact that White Christmas had on this country, on our troops, on the families back home, how it carried them through and gave them the motivation to fight 
our common enemy and uphold our values in this country. Another really fun fact that I love about the song White Christmas is it was actually used over the radio signals in the Vietnam War. I'm gonna read this from the source that I will link in the description below, but there was an operation to remove, start removing troops, withdrawing troops from Vietnam in 1975. It was called Operation Frequent Wind. And I'll just read it straight because I don't wanna mess this up. But throughout April, the United States reduced the number of people and the equipment in Vietnam. Then on April 28, 1975, the order from President Gerald Ford arrived. This launched Operation Frequent Wind, the term used for the final evacuation. The coded message went out. The temperature in Saigon is 105 degrees and rising. Then the wistful strains of White Christmas played on the radio. I have goosebumps. Just the magic that music can have on a society and on people and on their hearts. A lot of people say too that the song was written about his son who passed away and died on Christmas Day. I don't think it was. I mean, obviously I haven't spoken to Irving Berlin, but in his late 30s, he was writing fun satirical songs. He wasn't writing those sad songs like When I Lost You, like the song he wrote when he lost Dorothy. I hope that you really enjoyed this story behind the song, White Christmas. And if you like this kind of content, don't forget to hit the thumbs up button and subscribe to the channel. And I will see you on the next Roots Rockumentary. Hungry for the road all my life. Thirsty for adventure all my youth. Chasing all my freedoms down Liberty Avenue.